The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Books Podcast. I'm Richard Lee. I'm Claire Armistead. And I'm Sean Kane. This week we welcome Sarah Crossan with her latest long-form verse novel, Toffee, the story of a young runaway who finds herself living with an elderly woman suffering from dementia. I mean, I don't remember the details of the book, but I just remembered this friendship between an old man and these teenagers and how complicated and beautiful that friendship was. And I think in some ways, older people and younger people are marginalised and their voices are ignored. And I wanted to have two characters whose voices were being ignored, but they were hearing each other. But first, we talked to Joe Dunthorne, who's best known as a novelist. He's published two novels since his debut, Submarine, which Richard Ayoade turned into a cult film in 2010. But now he's turning his talents to poetry. Or rather, now he's decided to bring his verse out into the open because it turns out Dunthorne's been writing poetry for some time, doesn't it, Charles? Yeah, and I so I'd always thought of Joe Dunthorne as a novelist. And then I heard talk that he was having a, a poetry collection published by Faber. And I was a bit surprised by that and then looked it up. And he has been writing poetry for quite a long time. But his poetry is kind of strange because more often than not, they seem sort of like thought experiments or even jokes uh, <laughs> instead of <laughs> Not poems. so much lyrical ballads. Yeah, yeah. The, I mean, the, there is a sort of... There is a sort of beautiful, beautiful rhythm to a lot of them, but a lot of them are just kind of funny. And I did, I did read one to my partner recently. He just sort of gave me a bit of a baffled look because he wasn't really <laughs> sure how to, to compute what I just heard. But I've always really liked, I've really liked his sense of humour for a very long time. I read Submarine as a teenager, and I just, I really, really loved his character Oliver. So I have always been interested in everything he's written and I do think his novels are getting better and better. So I began by reminding him of an interview that we ran with him last year in The Observer um, where he said his last novel, The Adulterance, which is really, really good, it had just come out and he'd said that he felt like novel writing at that point was getting harder for him each time, which is sad for me. But without ever wanting to say that like poetry is somehow easier than novel writing, I started by asking him whether it was a sort of respite for him to write poetry. It is, and it has always been the fun thing How in, really? in, in my writing life. I guess there's a sense that you can't spend nine to five writing poems and, and no one would want to do that or, <laughs> or, or could do that. So poems represent always this little pocket of fun and, and I guess maybe I have always given my best parts of my day to poetry. So maybe that's why I find it fun. But yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a joy and it continues to be fun because you finish something mm. at the end of your half an hour, hour, whatever you give yourself. Even if it's terrible, you've completed a thing. Yeah. And then you go to your novel and it's two and a half years in and you're, you're halfway through. Yeah. And how does it fit in, in your days then? Do you actually say you're, you're feeling like you're getting nowhere with a novel? Do you take a break and go and think up a poem yeah definitely I think they can feed into each other in quite a useful way you know lots of I produce lots and lots of poems I think of it as just a kind of almost like one would do if one did weights which one doesn't uh (laughs) if you did exercises like that it's just something I do every day as a habit which I enjoy it's a Mm. it's a pleasure but often those poems aren't very good but I'll I'll look to kind of slice out favorite lines or images or whatever and then I have a big file on my computer called Recycle, and I put them all into the recycling folder. And essentially, over you know many years, I've built up enough images that in a novel, if I get to a scene, say, 
in a, a like a cooking scene. I think I'd love to have a really startling onion simile now. <laughs> then I can uh, search for onions and simile, and then all my onion similes will come out. I can pick one, and, and they're take, taken out of poems mostly. So, so huh. they do have a relationship. What I might do is I'll get you to read a couple now, just yeah. to sort of demonstrate, because there's quite a lot of humour in these poems and mm. quite a lot of wordplay and just really fun. It feels like you're having a lot of fun with language. Mm. So could I ask you, could you read I Decided to Stop Therapy? And because it's short, perhaps follow it up with At 33, I Finally Had the Dream. Oh, sure. <laughs> the poem I've been trying to keep away from my parents all this time. <laughs> Thanks for that. I wanted to see how unhappy I could get, and it was very. I did not know where I'd go to do it, somewhere not as beautiful. My life was hopeless when it was. I had the thinnest skin since sliced. Then God, in the shape of a young professional, paused her soft commute, and she did recommend a man who shut his eyes before he spoke. And he never let my jokes be jokes, never gave my pain a prize. And in time I did step clear of his unaffordable home to kneel in a garden square that was open to non-residents just this one day of the year. And there I thought of other words for the little bitty sticks of grass that were not leaves or blades. And then the poem that uh, you've been... <laughs> Yeah, this, is the, from your th this is the poem that I, I think when I give a copy of this book to my mum and dad, I'm going to redact. Rip out the page. Yeah, or <laughs> yes, or maybe ask Faber if they can print a special parent <laughs> edition. That's nice. At 33, I finally had the dream where I made love to my mother. I kept saying, you are my mother. And she said, I absolutely am. Then she phoned my father and told him everything. I actually saw you read that once. I right. saw you, um, there was a sort of Faber thing where they were getting all the Faber authors to present their work. Yeah. And you got on and you did a few readings. And there was just this really interesting reaction in this room because it was <laughs> a lot of people that were either outright laughing or a lot of people doing this sort of nervous laugh where I think they weren't really sure because it was poetry whether they were supposed to be mm. kind of tackling this with a, a much more serious face. Right. <laughs> Have you had that sort of... That kind of funny reaction. Yeah, poetry does make people feel awkward in that way. Mm. And there's the whole, are you allowed to clap mm. thing? You know, is a poem a short poem? Does that deserve applause? How long does a poem have to be before you're allowed to clap it? Yeah. And so there is all sorts of unfortunate awkwardnesses attached to poetry. And, <laughs> and, and I guess laughter is one of them, especially if you feel somehow that poetry is associated with, you know, deadly serious soul bearing. Yeah. Then is it appropriate to laugh? And do you think there is a, is there any line in poetry in terms of how funny it is before it just becomes a sort of a joke with a punchline? Right. Because some of these are like properly, you know, we just saw the scope of it there, that there, there, there are some poems that are just, you know, pure poetry with often very serious and there's, there's quite a lot of darkness in, mm. in this collection. Mm. But then there's also some poems that are just outright hilarious. Right. The, yeah. There are a few of the really short ones, which, are, which do come close to being punchlines. Mm. I guess I'm interested in how you can drag a reader from one thing to the other very, very quickly. Mm. And, you know, the mo you get them in the middle of laughing and then you, you drop something heavy on them. Um, <laughs> so I try and think of humor whenever I'm using it in all my writing as what's the purpose of it? Like what trick am I 
or what position am I getting the reader into in order to do something else? Being funny in a poem allows you to go very quickly to dark places because the kind of people are on side. They're like, oh, this is jolly. And then you can take them somewhere quite bleak. There's a sort of thread throughout a lot of these poems in terms of the narrator. And mm. some of them refer to a guy called Joe. Mm. Um, and then some of them are you know, parents and 30-somethings and mm. often people that feel some sort of anxiety about children or status or... Mm-hmm friendships and it's kind of it's something that we see in your novels as well with particularly like Roy and the adulterants Mm -hmm. um but also Oliver and Submarine I'm very attached to Oliver because I read that book when I was 17 (laughs) and so I was sort of near enough to to Oliver's age to I was also precocious (laughs) it was brilliant is this sort of something is this something that you write about because it's something that you observe in your own life or you sort of more interested in just that sort of inherent anxiety that people have being middle-class suburban people and the things they worry about? I think there's a bit of both. You know, it's fair to say that my writing, I do cannibalise my own life and digest it and puke it out. <laughs> uh, it comes out as, as, as in, in my work. So, you know, when I was younger, I wrote about a teenager and... Now I'm a bit older, my last novel's about someone in their 30s. I can see that, but but I think it's definitely a preoccupation on a more wider level with surfaces and people's deeper thoughts or unconscious thoughts. I'm sure lots of writers have that as a preoccupation, but, but that seems to be something I keep coming back to, you know, like the unknowability of the person across the table from you. And they, they're often really vivid, like, I suppose you, what you were talking about before, that a lot of these feel like almost veering on, like, thought experiments, mm. you know. There's the other poem, Ransom Tape. Right. Which which feels almost like, that's like almost a short story mm. with with a lot of the sort of middle cut out of it. <laughs> Would you mind reading Ransom Tape, actually? Yeah, just because sure. it is short, but yeah. I just, I loved how much of a story was inherent in it. Ransom Tape. A boom or some fruit keeps bobbing into frame. Our children are dressed in tracksuits the colour of aubergines. They kneel in a clearing of sawgrass somewhere between the equator and the Tropic of Capricorn. It feels wrong to say the production values reassure us. At the press conference, we make it clear we will not pay. We pay handing a hold-all to young men in Wendy's Caracas, while our kids, wrists tied, wait politely in the accessible restroom. It unlocks from both sides. So we were talking before about that, whether there was a line between a joke and and a poem. Mm. Um, but I'm also interested in how many of these stories also feel like that, that sort of stepping-off point that y- you could potentially write a fantastic Mm. even I don't know even a novel or a short story out Mm. of this sort of scenario Mm. and part of the joy of it is the imagining how this scenario happened you were saying before that you have the recycling folder and you go in Mm. and you find your onion similes Mm. but have you ever had that relationship with poetry that it's fed into a much greater work of fiction that it started as a sort of something that you just needed to put down on paper and it originally looked like a poem and then it's found its way into something else yeah definitely I think you instinctively think a story is a given size. Like that poem probably would have seemed at least like a short story at first. And then I find myself trying it on in that size. And the same for a novel, you know, it's not always the case that the biggest sounding idea is the biggest Mm -hmm. story. 
or, or maybe it's interesting to play against that, you know, what happens if you boil a novel down to a haiku. So yeah, it's definitely the case that sometimes you just have to write into the thing, try it as a short story, it doesn't work. Maybe it's a novel, maybe it's a poem. So you kind of got just shove, shove the thing until it fits its, its right form. What I might do is I'll get you to read one last poem, uh, Sestina for my friends. Sure. <laughs> just because I think this is a really good example of both your narrator, but also I think inherent in a lot of these poems and actually in your novels as well, that there is this sense that they're often in slightly absurd sort of worlds where people are acting not necessarily as you think they might mm. or perhaps they're doing things that we wish we could do but we're not mm. doing we don't see, feel like we have that freedom to do it and the the line in this the poem that i like was uh, this poem is better for my honesty <laughs> i was would you mind reading sestina for of course my friends? yeah sestina for my friends I know what my friends are thinking because of the things they say. Joe, you are shiny and worthwhile and always thinking of others. I am not so great. I could name at least five people who are better. Here's one of my faults. I'm forever calculating how to present myself in any given situation. Calculating people give W.G. Zebald's Rings of Saturn as a gift and think that the person receiving the book will think better of them. After reading it, they will say, Joe, it was beautiful. I mean, he's like the great Gramps I never had. He even made Suffolk compelling. I always give Rings of Saturn as a gift, sometimes even to boys. Always is too much. I have given it twice, if I'm calculating honestly. Once to a girl who thought I was great for just over a month until she suspected correctly that I think I am more interesting than her. If I say that the boy I gave it to was better at football than me, then I think you understand. Better to be left for dead on the right wing, always knowing that the boy who embarrassed you, let's say his name is Luke, has this book in his bedroom. I'm calculating that he won't have sold it because he thinks, nay, hopes that one day he might read it, this great and clever book that was a gift from a friend who is not great at football, but by God, he's got a brain, and ultimately it's better to have enormous thoughts than to be almost semi-pro. I think great people do not have these kinds of thoughts. I always keep my mauled copy somewhere half inconspicuous, calculating a spot where guests will see it, sure, but will not say, I bet Joe put that there so I see it. More likely they'll say, huh, such a clever book just lying there next to his football boots. It is great to know someone like Joe who is clever but doesn't rub your face in it. Calculating people are the worst in existence. This poem is better for its honesty. Even when I admit all this stuff, my friends can always fall back on my honesty. He thinks too much, they think. We had best not say anything about that Sestina. He'll always be great to us, better than great, more like excellent, or this is what I'm calculating. I love that poem. And I think in it, inherently there's this conversation about the idea that literature is somehow improving. Mm. Um, and I think that sometimes people veer away from poetry because they feel like it's lofty and that it's something that they 
are going to have to pretend to understand rather than actually understand. Yes. And I just love how honest you're kind of being there about the the, the motivations that we have mm. for nominating particular books in our lives. Yeah, it's so hard, isn't it, to, to, to let go of that idea and just find out what you... And be okay with enjoying what you enjoy. Mm. You know, I was talking to my friend Ross this morning, who stayed over at my house last night, and we were both saying, "Do you, do you like Wallace Stevens?" No, I actually hate Wallace Stevens. <laughs> but, but but we both own Wallace Stevens books, don't we? We have them on our on our shelves, and we really wish that we liked what Wallace <laughs> Stevens. Like, I, I hope I'll get there one day. Like, what? Why do I want to like it? Yeah. Why am I? Why is it so important to me? But yeah, it's it's impossible to to let go of that. Mm. And and with with poetry, I guess the final poem in this book is called "After I Have Written My Important Poem," <laughs> and it's sort of you about trying to imagine yourself writing the most perfect poem mm. for someone you don't even really like's civil ceremony. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and do you do you think that there is a lot of that still in literature? That there is sort of a an inherent loftiness to the way that. The people write or is it sort of you trying to just sort of expose the anxieties that we as the reader feel about the things we read I think you know poetry is very fractured there's lots of you know it's, it's just very broad there's loads of people doing lots of things but but I think it you know the the time when it was kind of uh, fresh and exciting to be rebelliously disrespectful in, in a poem is gone and there's lots of poets who are playful and have fun with it and don't feel they they're kind of speaking to canonical poetry. That poem, weirdly, I do want to write the perfect. I'm sure all poets maybe do, but I, in my head, I, I one day hope that the perfect poem will happen. That's kind of what I'm chasing. Mm. But that poem, I guess a part of it is about how it's always the next poem. You know, mm. you, you have to kind of like, part of the motivation of doing it is thinking, well, the next time I do it, I'm just going to nail it, knowing, and, knowing that you never will. And that, that your first collection is out. Do you feel like there is anything approaching the perfect poem in this collection? It feels kind of weird to say that there isn't. <laughs> well, th- th- there are poems I would, they're all poems I wouldn't change. Yeah. Which I guess is as, 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 as close as you can get. Yeah. You know, th- that, that's a great feeling. When you, th- when you look at all, every word, you go, yeah, I like that word. I like that word too. And, and that's, that is a wonderful feeling, you know, whether they are canonically perfect and they're going to stand alongside Shakespeare's sonnets, it seems less likely, but um, they're, they're perfect in their own form. And do you now see, I mean, you've always written poetry and you've always been, I think, publicly referred to as novelist Joe Dunthorne. Mm. Um, Are you hoping now that, will will poetry sort of feature, do you think, throughout your career now as equally as as, as novel writing? To be totally honest, I've I've always felt more like a poet than a a novelist. Really? But it's just such a slow process. At least my poetry process is very, very slow. And it takes me a long time to get a number of poems that I'm happy with. But I have more, much more consistently been writing poems through my writing life than writing novels. So I, if, I had, if I was a betting man, I would put money on me still be writing poems when I'm 70. <laughs> I don't know about novels. That was poet Joe Dunthorne. Sean, how do you feel about this new direction? Would you miss him as a novelist or are you happy with his, his poetry? Yeah, I would miss him as a novelist. And I think he's one of those writers that's quite upfront, I think, about the fact that a lot of the ideas he's sort of pulling apart in his novels are things that he's pulling apart in his own life. And so the adulterance was sort of guy in his 30s sort of figuring out what it's like to be an adult 
guy in his 30s, you know, trying to figure out, you know, sort of, do I want the mortgage life? Do I want the kids and the dog? You know, that sort of thing. So you're and, looking forward to hearing the next stage? Yeah, I, I want him to keep charting his sort of internal conundrums in novels. And, and I, I do love the poetry and I do admire poetry, but I, I, I don't want him to stop. Please don't stop, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> and now from poetry as a means of not writing a novel to poetry as a means to write a novel. Sarah Crossan joins us after this. Sarah Crossan is the Irish Children's Laureate and the author of eight novels, most of which are written in verse. We don't often interview children's writers on the podcast, but Claire, you've been agitating for ages to have her in. Why? Well, it's interesting. I, I sort of slightly winced when you described her as a <laughs> You sort of bracketed her as children's novelist because... A children's I, laureate, not children's novelist. She is children's laureate. Uh, and she is, it is, obviously, she is clearly identified as a YA writer. That's where she is placed. But I don't think of her as one, by which I mean that I don't read her novels with that sense of separation that I get when I read YA which is not written for me. The idea that it's addressed to, to a different group of people. Yeah, it's addressed to my children mm. and not to me. And I don't get this with her at all. I discovered her at the Hay Festival a couple of years back through Moonrise, which is her another verse novel about a boy whose brother is on death row. And I immediately went flipping back through her backlist. And it's a complete mystery to me how she manages to write fiction in poems that are clearly short poems, and yet they're also totally propulsive in terms of telling a story. So you don't notice that they're poems. They are proper poems, but you don't notice that they are. And her latest novel is about a young runaway who pitches up at the home of an old woman with dementia. And I basically think it should be taken up by Age UK and distributed into care homes across the country and also obviously across Ireland, as well as schools, because it's sort of wise and mature and as well as being fun. Despite the kind of difficult subject matter. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, she she writes such difficult subjects, but but she always manages to make them seem very easy to take. And again, it's it's part of this sort of magic trick she does. I mean, the nearest thing I I can equate it to is reading something like Le Petit Prince, um, Saint-Exupéry, which adults read as a meditation on existentialism. Children can read as a magic story about a little boy on a planet. It works on both those levels. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, when she came in to join me in the studio, I came over all fangirl, I'm afraid. <laughs> so, Sarah, welcome to the studio. I've Thank been wanting you. to interview you for ages because I just don't understand how you do what you do. <laughs> you write in, in verse yeah. and you write about very, very serious subjects for YA literature. Like we first met, I think, when I interviewed you for Moonrise, which was mm-hmm. about a boy whose brother's on death row. You don't get much more serious than that. Yeah. And here with Toffee, your new novel's about a runaway girl who ends up in the house of an old lady with Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. But you deal with such serious subjects and you deal with them in verse. And the story, <laughs> the, it, it's sort of the, the narrative is so smooth and you don't notice that you're reading poetry at all. It's a mystery to me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know I, why I always seem to write about difficult issues because I'm quite a happy human, you know, in my life. I'm quite jolly, but I suppose... The work is the place when I, where I can explore difficult things. And even though the, the topics do seem quite serious, I try to have corners of light in all of my books. My books are really hopeful. And there's lots of moments of joy in these books, despite the fact that they're difficult. They're difficult topics. So you started with The Way to Water about a Polish immigrant in Coventry and the mm-hmm. difficulty of being an immigrant, basically, in, in the north of England. Yeah, I think that, that book was really about my my own experiences 
as a child coming over from Ireland to England and being an immigrant and what that felt like. I didn't know it at the time. I, I sort of thought it was a book about bullying because it also is a book about the way girls bully each other and how that's different to the way boys bully each other. Girls tend to use friendships and relationships as weapons and words, whereas boys kind of thump each other. And I thought that was an interesting topic. But of course, it was about a Polish girl moving to Coventry. And it was only when it was sold that the editor said, this is a, a wonderful exploration of the immigrant experience. I said, oh, yes, <laughs> it is also that. And I was writing about myself, I suppose. And I think all the books are about me. So even the book you mentioned, Moonrise, about Joe, whose brother Ed is on death row in Texas, that for me, when I finished it, you know, when I finished the first draft, that was an incomplete book because I hadn't emotionally engaged because what does the death penalty have to do with me? Where was my kind of, where was my emotional connection going to come? And it was only when I realised that that was actually a book about how do you say goodbye to the people that you love, that then the book became a proper book and then that my editor was happy with the book because when I first sent it in, it was just an issues book and I don't write issue books. I write stories about characters. This is characters. a good point, yeah. 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 So they s- would seem on the surface to be issue books, mm. but, but they're sort of not, which is another part of this, this sort of magic trick you play. Well, I'm not interested in writing about issues and doing a number on any reader and trying to convince them that my way of thinking about a particular issue is the right way to think about it. I I want to write stories about people and all my stories are about how we find love and belonging, which is what as humans we're all trying to do. And that's, I think, at the core what every what Toffee is about, what Moonrise is about, what One is about. One is about conjoined twins. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Another unexpected subject. Yeah, and then I think that was a book about motherhood for me in many ways because it's about, obviously, you know, two people who are stuck together and have to find a way to live happily and, and how they don't want to become unstuck, that we imagine they would. But all the research I did showed that conjoined twins do not want to be separated. And I think that was a book about my connection to my daughter and that I didn't want to be separated from her. That kind of physical pain I had when I was away from her was something that I was able to explore through that through that book. Well, let's now move on to talking about Toffee, which I absolutely gulped down, I have oh, to say. You. And And I didn't think of it I never think of your books as YA. It's funny, you know, that usually there's a separation Mm. when I read YA books. I am aware that I'm going into a place where I'm reading books which are not intended for me. Mm. But I really don't feel that with your books. And, you know, part of this is because it's the relationship between Toffee, the girl, who is actually called Alison, but Marla, who's how she ends up in, thinks of, confuses her with, with somebody from her past. Yeah, It's such an adult relationship in a way it's about the old lady who's forgetting everything the young runaway finding how to be good did you have dementia in your family or I think the book that probably inspired me to write Toffee was a book called The Pig Man by Paul Zindel and I read that book when I was I think 13 and before that I had never been a reader I didn't grow up in a house with lots of books. I had very supportive parents, but they were busy and it, it, it kind of wasn't a bookish family. But we read this book at school and it made me howl, it made me sob. And I realised then that books had this amazing power and I just chewed up books after that. I, I became a huge reader. And I have never forgotten that book. And I, I mean, I don't remember the details of the book, but I just remembered this friendship between an old man and these teenagers and how complicated and beautiful that friendship was. And I think in some ways, older people and younger people are marginalised and their voices are ignored. And I wanted to 
have two characters whose voices were being ignored, but they were hearing each other. And so I think that's why they connect. And of, and of course, there are moments because Marla has dementia, she doesn't realise that she's the age that she is. And so she can interact with Toffee or Alison, whatever you want to call her, that she can react to her as a peer. Um, so they can have these really fun times together and difficult times together, but there's no inequality in the relationship, that there's, it's friendship in the most ordinary sense. Will you read a, a couple of little sections just to give us a sense of their personalities? Yeah, so I'll read a poem called I Am Toffee. I Am Toffee. I tell Marla my real name twice. Alison. Alison. And she uses it for a while, not looking at me, then continues to call me Toffee. She thinks that's who I am, so I stop correcting her. And anyway, I like the idea of being sweet and hard. A girl with a name for people to chew on. A girl who could break teeth. See, that is, it's just so moving. <laughs> I find that so moving. Weirdly, I don't know why. It just has a... A real effect on me because it's so simple and it just says so much about a, a child who's in distress you know trying to find their yes. identity and finding an identity in something that isn't her real name you know and being given a name that somehow sums her up better yeah than and is a name that gives her strength and, mm. and a name that yeah I, what I like about that poem is the last line a girl who could break teeth mm. that she has this toughness but also obviously there's a sadness to that because she has had lots of violence in her life so she understands what that means what mm. the concept of that is mm. it's interesting that that's the poem that you had asked me to read because that's the poem I began with so although oh, this is this yeah. is a poem that kind of is on page 35 it's the very first poem I wrote for this book and it was the name that gave me the beginning of the story so I started with the name I didn't start with the idea of uh, having an old woman or it was just I had this idea of a girl called Toffee and who was this girl called Toffee and that's where the book came from really well there you go <laughs> well let's let's um, be introduced properly to Marla now okay in a, oh in, in, a, in, in the in book a, in another poem <laughs> which I have also chosen <laughs> okay transparent every drawer Marla opens makes her grunt Every cupboard makes her scream, every chair, shove, every door, elbow. Can I help? I ask. Where are the tea bags? She shouts. I go to the counter, open a ceramic pot, blueberries painted on the side, and hold up what she's looking for. Makes no sense. That's fruit. That should have fruit in it. And she's right. The coffee container has gooseberries on the side, the sugar container, pears. Makes no sense, she repeats. I find tall glass tumblers above the sink. Fill three with tea, coffee, sugar, and pop them on the countertop. You'll know where they are now. Marla grins with as little of her mouth as possible. Smart ass. Boil the kettle then. So you get the sense there that Marla is also quite scratchy. <laughs> she can be scratchy. Yeah, she's tough. And we realise as the book goes on perhaps why she's so tough she's had loss in her life that she is dealing with and has to continuously deal with because she forgets why she's so sad and then has to be reminded about what happens and then Toffee's the person who realizes that perhaps she doesn't need to be reminded constantly about this awful thing that's happened. So we've got this backstory that emerges 
so although they're very quite short, simple poems, mm. there is a real complexity to the way they relate to each other, and they actually totally fulfil the purpose of a novel <laughs> by creating layers and layers and layers of story which involve past, present, and, yeah. and people who are half outside the picture and totally outside the picture. Yeah, I mean, in terms of how I would describe the form of the book... I rarely describe myself as a poet, although lots of people want to describe me as a poet, and I sometimes think I should take that on (laughs) and own it. But I'm a verse novelist, so story for me is the king, and I want to create a story where people want to keep turning the pages and that they're invested in the characters. Um, And I like to do it in verse because, quite simply, I can miss out the boring bits. I can just get to the heart of the emotional landscape and chart that I don't have to worry about how a character gets to the cinema that they get whatever bus to the cinema they're at home they're at the cinema and then it's three years later and so I can miss out all the boring stuff but you but you also have and that why I wanted you to read that particular poem about Marla you also have how people are defined by where they are so about how how Marla relates to the fact that her ceramic pots have fruit on them when they contain tea and coffee Mm. says an awful lot about her doesn't it it's very economic way of expressing how confusing the world is for her yeah I think that's the thing it is it is an economic way of of summing up of illustrating what's going on in a character's life for a character And I'm starting to get to the point as not just as an author, but as a reader, where I'm reading very long books and thinking this needed an editor. Why is it 900 pages? Why? You know, you've already illustrated this part of a person's character on page 60. Why do I need to see it again on page 19, 120 and 150? And I like when I write, I write a lot more than is ever published. So I probably write two, three times the amount and I just pair away and pair away and pair away. And I'm really careful about not repeating ideas about characters, but perhaps layering so that you get a greater sense of what a character is like. And I think there's a difference between those two things. Um, you've, you've written four novels in verse, I think. But you've also written in prose. How do you decide whether if this is going to be a verse novel or a prose novel? Because Breathe and Resist were both your mm. science fiction, your yeah, dystopian novels. Yeah, and Apple and novels. Rain as well. And Apple a, and Rain. was a prose novel. Yeah. That, that was a book that was heavily about poetry, so there was lots of poetry in it. The more I write in verse, the more difficult I find it to write in prose. I have just written an early reader in prose and I found that really challenging because I wanted to pair away. As I said, I like the kind of continuing to take away the flabby bits, the bit, the words that we don't need. But Moonrise was an interesting book in, in the way that it was written because I wrote that in verse. It just wasn't working. And I think, as I said at the beginning, it was a book about the death penalty and that's why it wasn't working. So I rewrote it in prose. I threw away the verse completely and I rewrote it in prose. And I think I wrote 87, 88,000 words. And I submitted that to my editor and she said, oh, you know, this, is, this also is not working. I thought, oh, goodness. So I threw that away and then I started again in verse. And... The second time that I wrote it, as I said, once I had an emotional connection to the character and I knew why I was writing the book, then I was able to do it. But sometimes I just have to experiment and see. I think ultimately it comes down to voice. And I think the voice when I wrote Moonrise in prose wasn't working and it was working when I wrote it in verse. And the more that I write in verse, the more that is becoming my voice. And so that becomes the natural way that I want to tell stories, I think. And part of the way that voice works is in the form of the poems. So mm. so you have throwaway ones, you have 
playful ones you have sort of you know emotional ones and mm. the titles of the poems relate to what's in them often in quite a a bleak way mm. and then you even have concrete poems like she will know which is in the shape of a christmas tree and it's because toffee is going to leave when marla gets taken into hospital and she's Toffee knows she's got to leave, but she wants to leave a Christmas tree for her, so she will know it's Christmas, and it's a little yeah. poem written in a, the shape of a Christmas tree. And that was just something I did for fun, really. I've never written a concrete poem before, so I, I thought that that was um, a perfect opportunity to do it. But and it I, is I, what what Toffee would do. You think she'd be doodling away, and she'd think, "Oh, I'll just do it like this." So, it, so it's yeah. not it's not a doesn't feel like an affectation. It feels like it's part of her personality. Yeah, and I think there's lots of moments in this book that are very playful. And so the scenes, for example, with Toffee and Marla where they're dancing, they're quite unusual poems for me because there's much more rhyme in them. The rhythm is much more regular, and so I have played with form I suppose in this book more than I have in the other books because it illustrates the not just Toffee's character but the relationship between those those two women. So it did occur to me that actually this should be distributed in in old age people's homes because it would be perfect because it's they're short they're very clear but it, they're also not patronizing yeah and I'm saying they because yeah. in a way it is a collection of poems but it is also mm. an it it's also it's an all. I hope so yeah that would be lovely i would i would love that and one of the early readers of toffee was wendy mitchell oh who we had on the pe- podcast she's yeah. written a book about having dementia dementia and she really liked the form that it was written in because it isn't this sort of dense text to struggle through and so it made it a little bit easier to kind of get through more of it and you know so i think if someone like like wendy is is saying that it appeals to her, then I, I'm, I'm really hoping that she kind of tells her friends and, and talks about it. And and not just my novel, but there are lots and lots of, of verse novels out there that I think that can appeal to people who don't have time or people who have certain urological conditions. Sarah Crossan there, crossing boundaries as always. It's funny how often when you're interviewing YA authors or children's authors that they bring up the fact that they're marketed as YA authors and children's authors. There's a certain amount of reluctance there, isn't there? Yeah, and I'm, I wonder if whether it's a sort of a preemptive reaction to snobbery that they think they're going to encounter if they label themselves a YA author or a children's author. But it, there's so much, so many advantages to being marketed as a YA or children's author that it kind of confuses me sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess the thing is that, that it's always difficult to look down on something and say, oh, it's just marketing. But actually, yeah. marketing really works if you're in the business of selling books. Yeah. Anyway, Toffee is out with Bloomsbury and O Positive is with Faber and Faber, both out now. Next week, Sinead Gleason's glittering book Constellations looks to the stars as a way of understanding how and who and even perhaps why we are. And as always, do contact us on Twitter at Guardian Books or by leaving a comment on the podcast page. And do subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts. But for now, from me, Richard Lee. Me, Sean Kane. From me, Claire Armistead. And our producer, Susanna Tresillian. Thanks for listening and goodbye. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.